Here's the new Cold War podcast with Edward Lucas. Russia and China are both engaged in an undeclared war on the West. In this unpublished reflection written in the summer of 2020, I noted that the regimes in Beijing are not allies, but they cooperate. Their strategies converge, chiefly because of shifts in China towards a more confrontational approach to the West. And their tactics, I count roughly 20, increasingly overlap. The first are diplomatic divide-and-rule gambits, designed to weaken multilateral rule-based organisations and to create the perception of targeted countries' isolation and indefensibility. For China, these centre on its campaign to humiliate and isolate Taiwan. This involves picking off the offshore Chinese democracies' remaining diplomatic allies and intimidating the rather larger number of countries that show other forms of support. Russia's approach on the diplomatic front is a bit cruder. It's focused mainly on Ukraine, which it depicts, not very successfully, as a failed and friendless fascist state. Russia also supports Serbia's attempts to delegitimise Kosovo. All this is backed by the second tactic, military bluff and sabre-rattling, plus irregular and regular warfare. China does this through the building of fortified reefs and rocks in the South China Sea, in military exercises designed to intimidate Taiwan, and in recent border skirmishes with India. For its part, Russia focuses on Syria, Libya and Ukraine, plus air and sea challenges to Western countries in the Baltic and Black Seas, and aggressive military exercises. The third tactic are economic sanctions such as import curbs and restrictions on exports and transit. The aim here is to use economic pain to bring political pressure to bear as a penalty for a particular policy stance. China is not an energy exporter and has largely refrained from politicising its supply chain, though it arguably adopted a Russian-style approach when it came to exports of rare earth minerals. Its main weapon is not exports but imports, calibrating access to the huge Chinese domestic market. But it has recently tried curbing exports with threats to block shipments of medical supplies to countries such as the Netherlands, which displeased the People's Republic by slightly upgrading its ties with Taiwan. But Russia has much more of a history here. The Kremlin banned access to its large home market for Polish meat producers nearly 15 years ago, reversing the move only after pressure from the then-new German Chancellor Angela Merkel. In response to Western sanctions after the invasion of Ukraine, Russia blocked EU food products, particularly hurting Polish apple farmers and Lithuanian cheesemakers. In energy, Russia benefited from the legacy of Soviet-era infrastructure, which made it a near-monopoly supplier in much of the former empire. The Kremlin has used gas exports as a way of rewarding friendly countries such as Hungary and punishing Ukraine. But careless use of this weapon has blunted its edge, and Europe's energy system is now far more diversified and resilient. The fourth tactic is use of the diaspora. The Beijing regime regards the 50 million overseas Chinese as a resource and also as a liability. They may fall victim to pernicious Western ideas about freedom. The policing and exploitation of the diaspora are major tasks for the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department. It uses the diaspora as intelligence assets or to add weight to discourse domination efforts, which I'll be talking about below. At a Warwick University student union debate on Hong Kong earlier this year, for example, China effortlessly mobilised 2,000 students to vote down a motion supporting democracy in the former British territory. 
Russia uses its diaspora, about 20 to 30 million people, for espionage, and also in its attempts to use history in modern-day political conflicts. I talk about that later as well. Though the United Front Work Department actually has its roots in Soviet political warfare doctrine, Russia now has no exact counterpart to the much more effective Chinese organisation. The closest the Kremlin's got is Rossatrudnichestvo, but that's hardly the common term. Fifth are organised crime networks, often but not necessarily involving the diaspora. These can be used for intelligence purposes, helping with logistics, penetration or intimidation, in influence operations, particularly in funnelling money into politics and media, or to demoralise target countries through violent unrest and the erosion of public confidence in state institutions. Russia is in the lead here, notably in Europe and North America. China has more limited use of these tactics, mainly via triads, which have been used against pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong and against pro-independence political forces in Taiwan. Sixth are overt and covert payments to buy influence in political parties. Russia focuses on Europe, both on the left and right-wing fringes of politics, but also in what might be called the greedy middle of the political spectrum. China has been caught red-handed, putting money into Australian politics and infiltrating the New Zealand parliament. And seventh is the physical intimidation of opponents and critics. Russia conducts political assassinations. China prefers kidnapping. Eighth are information operations. Both Russia and China have extensive networks of assets ranging from avowed so-called news outlets such as China's CGTN television network and Russia's Sputnik and RT, and both also have a large and partly clandestine social media presence, both by advertising supplements in mainstream media with the intent of softening criticism, both make systematic attempts to influence diaspora media outlets, punishing critical ones with advertising boycotts and other intimidation, rewarding friendly ones, and, if necessary, making acquisitions or other interventions. Both Russia and China have been in full cry on the information front during the COVID-19 outbreak, denigrating Western responses, spreading conspiracy theories, and, even from Russian outlets, rebutting criticism of China. The last of the joint tactics are cyber attacks on the confidentiality, integrity and availability of data held on a target country's computer systems. China concentrates more on stealing intellectual property and acquiring big databases that help it conduct digital surveillance of the outside world. Its role in the new 5G data networks, and particularly the dependence there on products made by Huawei, a nominally independent company controlled by a Communist Party trade union branch, have attracted particular note. For its part, Russia's efforts include gathering high-level political intelligence, hacking and leaking operations aimed at disrupting and influencing political processes, more of that below, and also the sabotage of critical infrastructure such as power grids. Now, there are two tactics which I reckon are so far specific to China. The first is discourse domination, trying to control the way that foreign universities, think tanks, media and publishers discuss China, in particular, highly sensitive topics. These include Tibet, Taiwan, human rights, religious freedom, and lately the mass incarceration of Muslim Uyghurs. The tactics include carrots, such as sending large numbers of Chinese students to favoured universities and offering them access to the Chinese education market, and sticks include withdrawing such incentives, including stopping visas for hawkish foreign policy analysts, and potentially career-killing accusations of racism. 
Discourse domination is a central part of Leninist political ideology, long forgotten in Russia, but at the heart of the regime in Beijing. Russia fights its corner too, I talked about information operations earlier, but the Kremlin makes no comparable attempt to achieve cultural and intellectual hegemony abroad. The second China-only tactic is the use of weaponized infrastructure projects, sometimes called debt-trap diplomacy. China promotes big, superficially attractive schemes which land the target country with crippling debt. They may also involve bribing decision-makers. The combined effect is to build bastions of political influence as well as facts on the ground, road, rail and sea routes that are under Chinese control. One framework for this is the 17 plus 1 grouping of East European countries plus Greece, in which cash-strapped countries from the poorer half of Europe compete for Chinese infrastructure projects by offering cosy terms and political favours. Russia lacks the financial and organisational clout to do anything like this. Indeed, some would argue that it is itself in danger from this kind of Chinese operation. There are nine tactics which I reckon are, for now at least, Kremlin-only. The first is the exploitation of economic, ethnic, linguistic, regional, religious, social and other divisions in the target country. This is a hallmark Russian approach. Chinese divide and rule tactics focus mostly on external alliances. The Russian aim is simple. A weak country, beset by internal tensions, will have little time and energy to spare for its security. China does stoke political tensions in Taiwan, but it has shown no ability to do this in less familiar cultures and countries. The second Russia-only tactic is financial. This includes stoking panics such as bank runs and in using financial markets to punish or reward political actors. Russian entities and agencies also expertly exploit the country's position in these markets for insider trading, simultaneously moving the price and betting on the movement. The third is weaponizing history. China lies about its own history, but a Kremlin specialty is besmirching the reputation of target countries, chiefly depicting them as Nazis for their resistance to Soviet aggression or occupation. This not only damages the victim's reputation, it distracts attention from Kremlin crimes. Fourth is the use of covert influence operations, particularly the hacking and leaking attacks seen in the US and French presidential elections. These are technically trivial, but require a sophisticated understanding of the target country's media and political systems. That's a Russian specialty, and not, so far, a Chinese one. Fifth is abuse of the international and local legal systems, such as issuing Interpol red notices to critics, mounting libel actions, and vexatious lawsuits. China has tried lawfare, as we call it, on a small scale, notably in Australia, but for the Kremlin, it's a heavy weapon. The aim is not victory, it's deterrence. A few million spent on legal fees is nothing for a Russian plaintiff, but the prospect of a heavy defence bill is daunting for Western media, think tanks, academics and campaigners. Their silence for the Kremlin is golden. Sixth is outsourced warfare. Private security contractors such as the Wagner Group offer a full-service arsenal to hard-pressed dictators, with weapons ranging from cyber to kinetic. The customer pays by providing natural resources and other concessions, and also with diplomatic support for the Kremlin in the international arena. Seventh is the exploitation of religious sentiment, especially among orthodox believers. China has used temple networks in Taiwan and elsewhere, but on nothing like the same scale. For Russia, the canonical hegemony of the Moscow Patriarchate is a major goal of state policy. In recent years, 
this approach has had major setbacks, notably with the independence of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Eighth is subversion of social norms, public confidence and state institutions, chiefly through the nihilistic propaganda of media outlets such as RT and Sputnik. The message is simple and corrosive, trust nobody. This nihilistic approach has no real counterpart in China, where messaging on the whole stresses the benefits of order, cohesion and other Confucian values. For the same reason, Russia is on its own when it comes to support for potentially violent antisocial behaviour. This emerging threat comes via Russian intelligence agencies' overt and covert backing for groups that particularly attract alienated, bored young people, mainly men. Examples include anti-crime vigilantes, mixed martial arts clubs and biker gangs. The ultimate purpose of these capabilities, worryingly, is unclear. Now, any outsider thinking about the above list cannot fail to notice that these tactics, to put it mildly, are not blessed with success. They might be characterised as the opposite of make friends and influence people, something like alienate your allies and alarm your adversaries. Russia, particularly under Vladimir Putin, has amplified, intensified and modernised the arsenal of tactics it inherited from the Soviet Union. But the results seemingly have been disastrous. The treatment of Ukraine, plus rough-edged rhetoric on other fronts, brought NATO to the realisation that the Baltic states need defending. Similar treatment turned Sweden and Finland into foreign policy hawks. Cyber attacks on the US, France, Germany and other countries have also provided a series of wake-up calls. Overuse of the energy weapon, as I mentioned earlier, prompted the EU to invest heavily in regulatory and infrastructure responses that have transformed the gas market and in a way that is highly unfavourable to Russia. None of these policies have built lasting ties with capable, loyal friends. The Kremlin's allies are a miserable list of Libyan warlords, Venezuelan despots, African tyrants and Syria's blood-drenched Assad regime. Oh, and I forgot Tajikistan. Outsiders might scoff at a strategy that has isolated and marginalised Russia. But China, under Xi Jinping, does not scoff at Putin. It copies him. Back in 2012, the outside world had largely given up on the idea of containing or constraining China. Some thought China's rise was outright benign. Others just thought it was inevitable. Either way, it was hard to see who would resist it effectively or how. Places like Hong Kong and Taiwan would sooner or later fall fully into the People's Republic's de facto sphere of influence. As late as 2014, John Mearsheimer, a revered international relations theorist, wrote a piece called Say Goodbye to Taiwan. But China's thin-skinned bullying has changed our minds. Britain is hastily realising its mistake, with talk in Downing Street of a reckoning once the COVID-19 pandemic is over. The US administration now treats China, at least rhetorically, as a global villain. The EU calls it a systemic rival. New coalitions are forming to confront and constrain Chinese power, such as the new International Parliamentary Alliance on China, which I've been working with. Western democracies are uneasy about influence peddling in their academic, media and political systems. They're increasingly ready to pay a serious economic price to reduce the risk of supply chains dependent on China. None of this was foreseen a few years ago. None of it was inevitable. It's all the result of Xi Jinping's overreach. Yet the policy is not quite as stupid as it seems. For a start, it works well at home. The real target of China's wolf warrior diplomacy, that's named after a Chinese Rambo-type adventure hero, is not foreign countries, it's domestic opinion. Like Putin, 
Xi has realised that fanning nationalist and anti-Western sentiment at home is a useful tactic. It distracts on political, economic and social stresses. Counterintuitively, it may also work abroad. Foreign policy victories over an alert and determined adversary are more rewarding than those gained by stealth. It may be nice for the Kremlin to have Ukraine, as it was 10 years ago, as a docile and sleepy neighbour ruled by corrupt satraps, it's even better to punish a country that has publicly tried to turn to the West. Similarly, peaceful unification with Taiwan under some variant of one country, two systems would be a fine outcome for China by the standards of the past, but it would be even more rewarding to reveal the United States as impotent by forcing Taiwan into a dramatic surrender. The point here is that what may seem a risky and potentially counterproductive approach by the standards of the outside world can make perfect sense to those schooled in the ruthless doctrines of Leninist political warfare. Why go for a win-win outcome when you can have win-lose, humiliating your opponent and sending a fearsome message to anyone else who dares resist you? From our point of view, Putin and Xi may seem to be disastrously mistaken, but from their standpoint, they've been winning and they expect more victories to come. This is Edward Lucas with the New Cold War podcast. You can find more about me, my books and other publications at edwardlucas.com or follow me on Twitter at Edward Lucas. This has been a homegrown media production. For more on the New Cold War, please visit edwardlucas.com.